Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick, delighted as always to welcome you back once more to Intervals, the public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. For today's guest lecture, we are joined by Dr. Renda Tawil, a historian and professor at Texas Christian University, who introduces us to the work and professional existence of one Marcus Braun, a special inspector for the U.S. government who was sent abroad in the early 20th century to study would-be American immigrants in their respective countries of origin. Braun traveled extensively through the Ottoman Empire, Mexico, China, and Eastern Europe to formulate his findings, along the way generating reports that reveal nearly as much about himself, his nationalism, his concept of empire, his racism, and his views that some would-be immigrants were more desirable to have in the U.S. than others. Through Braun's work, a portrait of a racially coded immigration hierarchy emerges, and from Renda's work in this episode, we learn a lot more about how knowledge producers like Braun shaped U.S. immigration policy in the early 20th century. Couldn't be more timely, and we really hope you enjoy it. Today, there are approximately 280 million people on the move. The intersecting crises of climate disaster, economic inequality, and rising fascism has pushed many people to leave their homes and take on a new subjectivity as a migrant. But as we have seen through European and U.S. policy decisions and public opinion, not all migrants are treated equally or seen as worthy of entrance to a new country. As some migrants are able to move with relative freedom, others are stuck in detention camps and on islands, awaiting a process that never seems to arrive. Most liberal countries justify these policies by claiming that they are in place only to protect their citizens against quote-unquote bad migrants, right? And that they truly welcome the quote-unquote good migrants. But how do we understand who is a good migrant and who is bad? What does a migrant do to become bad? When does a migrant become bad? And ultimately, who decides? I ask these questions because I don't want to focus on migrants themselves, but rather how these categories are created and given meaning. In this way, I follow the work of critical refugee studies, which, as Eric Tang has asserted, quote, refuses to locate the refugee as an object to be studied, a problem to be solved, or a legal classification to be dissected, end quote. Like Tang, I'm interested in deconstructing the idea of who is a migrant, and particularly how the categories are created and by whom. I found this question particularly interesting as I began studying the U.S. immigration inspection system, and particularly inspectors in the early 20th century, as immigration to the U.S. continued to grow in the late 19th century, federal authorities desired to learn everything they could about migrants, not only who they were, but also why they were seeking entrance into the United States. Beginning in 1895, the Department of Labor and Commerce, which controlled immigration services, provided annual reports on migration. They included myriads of statistics on migration based on nationality, disease, age, and gender. In their reports, inspectors made it clear that their recommendations would not, quote, restrict the right of capital, end quote, but rather focus just on restricting the movement of undesirable people. So this meant that the reporters 
would not recommend restrictions on international transportation lines since they were vital to the U.S. economy. They also told Congress that it would be a waste of time to go after large corporations that abused contract labor laws because those corporations knew how to circumvent the law without going to court through litigation. With the flows of capital unquestioned, the investigations focused rather on other reasons migrants were traveling to the United States, the ways migrants navigated their way to the country, and the seemingly global network of actors who aided them. The inspectors who were sent on these trips were mostly recent migrants themselves. They needed to blend in with other migrants in order to understand their networks and the informal ways they traveled. Their reports were given to Congress and distributed to all those working in immigration, as well as republished in newspapers across the country. They formed the knowledge base for the federal government and the wider public to vilify migrants and to construe their circuitous travel as an indication of criminality and illicit desire. These inspectors mythologized a global conspiracy of, quote, undesirable migrants, sneaking into the United States through well-defined networks and poorly surveilled ports, while underplaying the global power of transportation lines, government relations, and corporations. Traveling migrants then, when they finally got to U.S. borders, were met by inspectors who assumed they were liars, who assumed they were the wrong type of migrant and had the wrong intention entering the country, and that the problems that migrants had faced on their journey only revealed their own depravity. Little of what migrants said to inspectors made a difference when they arrived in the United States because the truth about their trips and morals had already been relayed to the inspectors through these reports by these traveling special migrant inspectors. So the paradox, of course, is that this nationalizing borders is a deeply transnational act not only through international treaties and negotiations, but through the knowledge production essential to creating these treaties. The United States government had to rely on immigrant inspectors who participated in transnational networks and communities. It relied on inspectors' language skills, local knowledges, and abilities to blend in with the traveling migrant networks in order to get accurate reports. These inspectors with highly transnational lives were charged with policing their own compatriots or other migrants. And for this reason, the immigration inspectors' classed, gendered, and national position in relation to other migrants bled into their reports. Inspectors had their own conception of nationalism, masculinity, consent, desire, and Americanization. They were not simply American inspectors judging migrants, but rather particularly positioned male migrants judging other migrants. Exploring their role as transnational masculine actors reinterprets the idea of nativism and the way that knowledge around the good migrant and the bad migrant was created and legitimized. Like I said, these inspectors were always male, mostly middle class and educated compared to many of the migrants they policed. They were wary of the fate of the wrong kind of migrant on U.S. immigrant communities. Their reports emphasized that the best way to detect the wrong kind of migrant was not through the individuals themselves, who in their estimation could not be trusted anyway to tell the truth, 
but rather was through the way in which they traveled to the United States. Marcus Brown was one such agent and the subject for the rest of this podcast. Born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he came to the United States as a young man and began his career as a journalist for Hungarian newspapers in New York. Braun was both a Hungarian nationalist and an ardent Republican. In 1898, he organized the Hungarian Club of New York to campaign for Theodore Roosevelt's gubernatorial campaign, securing his victory. To show his gratitude, as governor, Roosevelt asked the president of the Republican League of the United States to find Marcus Braun a steady job in his administration. So Braun was soon hired by the immigration services permanently and without the usual exam that you're supposed to take. Um, He was done this through an executive order by Roosevelt. Roosevelt's view on immigration was restrictionist. He understood immigrant labor to be essential for American growth, but worried about the future of U.S. democracy when it was overrun by, quote, inferior races. He was a strong believer in the Great Replacement Theory, or as they called it at the time also, race suicide. Of course, this has become tragically newly relevant today. And when asked about immigration, Braun actually would quote Roosevelt, saying, quote, We cannot have too much immigration of the right kind, and we should have none of the immigration of the wrong kind. The need is to devise a system by which undesirable immigrants shall be kept out entirely while desirable immigrants are properly distributed throughout the country, end quote. So Brown and Roosevelt agreed, and it was Marcus Braun who really told Roosevelt which migrant was which. So while his work in the Republican Party may have started his career, Braun's politics surrounding the Austro-Hungarian Empire heavily affected it. An outspoken nationalist and former officer in the Hungarian army, Braun never accepted the Austrian Empire as his legitimate ruler and advocated for an independent Hungary. His politics gained the attention of the New York Tribune in 1894 when he refused to sign his U.S. naturalization papers because he was asked to forswear allegiance to both the King of Hungary and the Emperor of Austria. He declared that he never had allegiance to the Austrian monarchy, and so forswearing that allegiance would legitimate them as his ruler. This caused quite a stir, enough for him to be written up in the paper. He was proud of his country and their contributions to the world. And during Roosevelt's gubernatorial race and well afterwards, he would frequently send Roosevelt Hungarian bitters and homemade goose liver in an attempt to introduce the president to Hungarian cuisine. Braun's reports merged immigration policing with white middle-class reformers' zealotry towards morality, industry, and governability. In 1904, the U.S. government commissioned him to travel across the entire world, investigating why people were traveling to the United States in such high numbers. Braun happily took up the challenge. And reading his many reports alongside each other from different countries, different continents, it's clear how racial logics are imbued in his interpretations for the reasons people traveled. He insisted his judgments were not based on race or creed, but clearly they are. So for me, what is most interesting, however, is how his own diasporic nationalism and his aspirations towards white middle-class respectability formed the way he judged migrants for their choices. 
Rather than solely a nativist response to migration, Bronze and many other special migrant agencies developed a diasporic one, which then helped inform attitudes that would become nativist. So on his many trips, he learned the ways that shipping companies and corporations and governments exploited migrants, but he interpreted the meaning of their victimhood in racial terms. So I'm going to compare really two of his trips, um, his time in Hungary and then later his time in the Middle East and Mexico. And in Hungary, the corruption Braun witnessed led him to see Hungarians as a moral lace with an immoral government, whereas on his later trips, he viewed migrants themselves as immoral and the governments that ruled them as feckless. So his racialized readings of morality and coercion and labor merged to inform this knowledge he produced about who is the good and who is the bad migrant. When Braun arrived in Hungary in 1904, he was horrified by the corruption he saw. He reported that the prime minister, Stefan Tisa, had promised the Cunard Line in Liverpool 30,000 migrants annually for a fixed price. Tisa, therefore, was artificially increasing migration and convincing Hungarians to travel to the United States even if it was not in their best interest. Braun's ire at Tisa might have also been due to the fact that Tisa believed in political dualism and supported Hungary's partnership with Austria, although, you know, Braun never mentioned that in his report. Braun was angered at Tisa for allowing Hungarians who were, quote, not ready to Americanize, unquote, to come to the United States and effectively causing a state within a state, as he would say. So while in Hungary investigating migration, Braun published articles for the opposition party and placed ads in local newspapers telling migrants to travel to Canada instead of the United States. His actions created a diplomatic crisis when the Hungarian government discovered his actions and accused the U.S. government of interfering with states' matters. Braun's trip and investigation, while ostensibly in the name of the U.S. government, was deeply mired in diasporic nationalism, oppositional politics, and middle-class notion of Americanization. Braun gained recognition as an immigration inspector by appealing to white patriarchal respectability in the United States. However, that Braun himself wrote for a Hungarian language paper and that he was the head of the Hungarian club, it didn't seem to warrant this worry about a state within a state. Braun's transnational engagement was indispensable for the United States government, but his class and nationalist perceptions of Hungary affected the way in which other Hungarians were understood and seen in the United States. In fact, preceding Braun's report on inflated migration from Hungary, he injected a 78-page preface that summarized the country's history and culture. He writes, Because I did not wish the American people to think for a moment that it is Hungary, the beautiful land on the banks of the Danube and the Tisza, or the Hungarian people, a noble, progressive race, who are at fault. Unquote. That Braun himself wrote for a Hungarian newspaper and was the head of the Hungarian Club of New York did not seem to warrant him to worry about a state within a state. And so it was Braun's transnational engagement that was indispensable for the U.S. government, but his class and national perceptions of Hungary affected the way in which other Hungarians were understood and seen in the United States. In fact, 
Preceding Braun's report on this inflated migration from Hungary, he injected a 78-page preface that summarized the country's history and culture because, quote, I did not want the American people to think for a moment that it is Hungary, the beautiful land on the banks of the Danube and the Tisza, or Hungarian people, a noble, progressive race, who are at fault, end quote. And so for him, it was very important to show it was not the people themselves who lacked morality, but the state. Well, this is not true with other groups. Braun's understanding of the powerful economic actors within the emigration system and his opposition for who he believed were, quote, temporary mi migrants, stayed with him as he conducted his next investigation in the Ottoman Empire. So in Hungary, Braun believed it was the government, not the immigrants, who were responsible for abusing the U.S. immigration system. When he arrived in Syria, he saw the problem as reversed. The people, not the government, controlled emigration to the United States and were manipulating the system to gain advantage for themselves when they returned to the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman officials had little to do with emigration, and Braun believed that, quote, the business of inducing emigration is pursued first through greed of money and second through political agitation, end quote. Armenians, he believed, came to the United States only to gain political representation that they were not given in Turkey. In Mount Lebanon, he noted, Syrians were using American money to return and build houses. Anglo-Americans living in Syria could see the negative effects of immigration. The clerk of the American Presbyterian Church called it a curse. A professor at the Syrian Protestant College confessed that Syrians, quote, returning from the United States bring back, in addition to their former bad habits, which consist chiefly of a lying disposition, also that nasty habit of forwardness, end quote. Braun saw how a Syrian predilection to lying and forwardness produced problems for both the U.S. and Ottoman government. A U.S. consulate worker complained that Syrians with American naturalization papers kept them hidden until they broke a law and then produced them and demanded protection, quote, giving no end of inconvenience to our said consul, end quote. After his time in the Ottoman Empire, Braun was sure that, quote, Immigration from the Turkish Dominion, both European and Asiatic, is nothing short of a menace to this country. Either by nature or centuries of oppression, the Armenians and Syrians have become habitual and almost hysterical liars. And if he comes to the United States, he does so with the distinct and premeditated purpose to earn dollars, obtain American citizenship, return to his native country, and involve our government in constant conflicts with Turkey. Much like the Hungarians he had studied, Braun believed that Syrians and, Ameri and Armenians were entering the United States for the wrong reasons and using the naturalization process of the country to continue, quote, old world power struggles. The migrants, he feared, were developing states within a state, both in the Ottoman Empire and in the United States. Their mobility and use of citizenship made them devious subjects and citizens not fit for either the Ottoman Empire nor the United States. Unlike Hungarians, however, the Syrians who came to the United States were not victims. They were, quote, by nature, or else centuries of history, apparently, ultimately bad actors. Braun, of course, saw no hypocrisy in 
criticizing Syrians when a few years before he had used his position as a U.S. citizen to escape persecution in Hungary when he wrote for the oppositional newspapers advocating Hungarian nationalism. Braun found that Syrians' devious reasons for deciding to travel to the United States translated into the way they traveled. One main assumption of Braun and many other immigration inspectors was that no matter where a migrant was, they inevitably wanted to migrate to the United States. So despite evidence of large immigrant populations in Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, and many other nations across the Americas, officers were convinced that all migrants simply wanted to come to the United States for the opportunities there, and eventually were waiting for an opportunity to cross the border to the U.S. As one investigator wrote in 1903, there is little doubt but that many of the rejected immigrants who go to South America hope in time to obtain admission to the United States by some less direct route of original intention from Europe. So when, in 1905, Canada opened a new steamship, Immigration inspectors assumed that the steamship was hoping to attract migrants who wanted to come to the United States without passing through Ellis Island. As the 1906 report plainly laid out, quote, laborers merely use foreign contiguous territory as a place of sojourn while perfecting plans for proceeding to points in the U.S., end quote. So with a wholly U.S.-centric focus on mobility, immigration reports made it common knowledge that any person who traveled across the Atlantic did so with the desire to enter and settle in the United States. Accordingly, more investigations were issued as Syrians arrived at ports at the United States deemed by U.S. Bureau of Immigration as easily crossed. Although Syrians explained to officers that their reasons for ending up in Laredo or Detroit or Philadelphia were legitimate. Immigration inspectors already believed they had sufficient knowledge of their journeys and their intention to exclude them. So when migration inspectors questioned Syrian immigrants, they already were assured that they could, quote, place no dependence on what they testify as Syrians have a natural propensity for false statements, end quote. So Braun continued his journey from the Ottoman Empire. He went through Asia and then he went to Mexico. And he arrived in Veracruz in 1905, where he was tasked to document how Syrians in particular traveled through Mexico to the United States. The inspector's understanding of the border and the people who crossed it had been framed already by exclusionary laws against Chinese and Japanese laborers, and Braun insisted that the people who traveled through this border were racially inferior and rebellious workers, greedy middlemen, and deviant women trying to cross into the U.S. illegally. So although, again, the report clashed with the reality of hemispheric economic diasporas of Asian people, they again became the basis for both the government and broader public's idea of migrants in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Braun may have been scrutinizing of all migrants, but it's important to understand that his idea of different ports and who entered what port could discern the difference between a good and bad migrant. So Ellis Island was seen as a port that was able to discern the difference. It was the first port of its kind to be constructed with the intention of managing mass migration, and the government commissioned the construction of this large facility that could both house the migrants and the inspectors. 
And reporters at the time marveled at its architecture, both for its functionality, but also for the lessons it would teach migrants as they passed through it. So according to one reporter, I'm going to do a long quotation. The reporter says, instead of insufficient, low-heeled, stuffy, and malodorous quarters of the present barge office, the immigrant will find himself in a great, airy building fitted with every reasonable accommodation for his comfort and situated on a pretty piece of ground out in the harbor. And almost within a stone's throw, the Statue of Liberty looms up on Bedloe's Island, which may inspire him with the feelings of respect and veneration for the institutions that made its reception possible. And on the other side is the Jersey Shore, from which will come to his ears the busy hum of industry. All about the water space are big and little ships and steamers moving about on commercial missions. From the sight of which he may gather lessons of usefulness and activity. The whole situation is at once instructive and convenient. While the instructive landscape of Ellis Island, in line with public projects at the time, was designed to discipline male migrants and teach them the connections between industry and citizenship as soon as they walked through the steamships, the male immigrant would not only learn these lessons through his reception, but also through his reception at this particular spot. Braun did not like, in contrast, how Syrians arrived in Veracruz. He lamented that the Mexican government had no examination for migrants upon arrival, and instead they were escorted straight to the office of a Syrian boss who put them on, quote, the famous or rather infamous underground system of smuggling into the territory of the United States. The store, called La Europa Asiatica, looked like a rundown doorless storefront, its interior engulfed in darkness. It advertised perfume and lingerie. Its disorderly state, its emptiness, and its scandalous merchandise was quite a contrast to Ellis Island. And Braun concluded that, quote, via Mexico come into the United States the Syrians whose physique would positively be found below the standard set by our laws and who therefore would surely be rejected that they knock at our Atlantic and other portals and ask admissions. The U.S.-Mexico borderlands also offered no such comforts of Ellis Island to Marcus Brown. At nearly 2,000 miles and cutting through desert, mountains, and water, the border was simply impossible to surveil and had become a site of national crisis in the late 19th and early 20th century when Japanese and Chinese men used it to avert the exclusionary laws passed against them in the United States. Agents reported that Chinese and Japanese people were disguised as Mexicans in order to cross the border. Syrians, Greeks, Italians, and other Eastern Mediterranean people also provoked panic when they met immigration inspectors there. It was their route to the United States. Seemingly, not going through Ellis Island was a kind of message that they weren't good enough to go through Ellis Island. As Braun traveled through Mexico, rebellious workers became his focus. He was concerned with Japanese and Chinese contract workers in Mexico, who he believed were illegally moving to California and the American Southwest, and Syrians who were smuggled across the border by padrones. At the time of his report, Chinese workers were prohibited from entering the U.S. under the Exclusion Act of 1882. Braun believed Chinese and Japanese workers came to Mexico with the full intention of deserting their employment and crossing into the U.S., quote, surreptitiously, clandestinely, and fraudulently, end quote. 
He reported that Chinese and Japanese men left the mines or fields in which they were contracted to work in order to find higher wages in the U.S. In this way, Braun saw a conspiracy. Laborers knowingly entered a system with the, quote, distinct and prearranged plan to avail themselves of the opportunity of being brought to the North American continent at the expense of somebody else and then leave this somebody else in the lurch and cross into the United States, end quote. The rebellious laborers, as he called them in his report, shirked their contracted work in Mexican mines. When Braun met the representative of the first legation of Japan to Mexico, he learned that the rumors of maltreatment at the mines were exaggerated, and rather, they left because they could receive, quote, more than twice the pay in the United States and live just as cheap as in Mexico, end quote. So Braun determined the workers had no allegiance to place and were migrating to the United States solely for profit. His depiction of Chinese and Japanese workers misread the hemispheric economy in which they participated. Chinese and Japanese were part of a hemispheric diaspora across the Americas that was highly contingent on the needs of different settler projects. Mexico pushed for Asian laborers to inhabit areas with high concentration of indigenous people, working on industrialization projects like mining and displacing local populations. Chinese contractors who had previously bought workers to the United States started to contract in Mexico or the Caribbean. Asian workers were connected to a hemispheric diaspora that was highly mobile. So when Braun reported repeatedly of Japanese and Chinese desertion of their labor project, he had assumed that, quote, deserters had straight to the United States clandestinely. Through his account, he erases the connections that workers already had with the United States, as well as the many other countries across Central and Northern America and regions in Mexico. What was a highly mobile and connected diaspora? Brown transformed into a linear account of deviant workers creeping into the United States in search of profit. What Braun could not imagine, what his beliefs and assumptions blinded him to, was the dynamic transnational communities developed by Syrians and Japanese and Chinese migrants in the Americas. Referred to Sarah Gualtieri as the Arab Pacific, Syrians had established communities across the borderlands since the late 19th century, working mostly as peddlers and merchants and creating lasting ties and lifeways between the two countries. Many Chinese and Japanese migrants also made community and lived in these borderlands as well as throughout Mexico, throughout South America, and the Caribbean. The United States was not always the final destination of migrants, and the ones who traveled to Mexico were not, quote, lesser than those who traveled to the United States. But Brown's U.S.-centric view and his racialized notion of mobility, as well as his own diasporic longings and desire to be seen as the right kind of immigrant, imbued the roots of Syrians and other Asians with meaning that took on a racialized knowledge. Who was fit for migration could be explained through how they moved and why, which seemingly avoided racial logics, but also were completely based on them. In 1907, Five years after Brown went on his first trip as a special agent, he boasted in a local newspaper that he had traveled half a million miles in the service of immigration control. His mobility, backed by the state, was something to be proud of. He called it his duty. Brown's status as a transnational figure and the, quote, right kind of migrant not only made his feat possible to achieve, but also foretold his findings. In this way, 
His mobility was essential towards the hardening of national borders and racial hierarchies. And there were others like him as well, Nadim Arjili, Arsabayadis Sarafik, and Najib Abdo are just a few of the men who were employed by U.S. government to travel and learn about other migrants. Their backgrounds reveal the complex interplay between migrants and the state and their role in creating racial knowledge. They also show us the paradoxical nature of nationalism, which must use the knowledge and access of immigrants in order to stop their arrival. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you once more to our guests for another brilliant presentation and for sharing some of their work with us. Thanks to you for listening. Come again next time, and we will catch you then.